you need a Bible this morning, would you raise your hand? We also, uh, we have note cards to help you track with the message this morning. And then we also have these communication cards. Um, if you're new with us, we would love it if you would fill this out. Give us your contact information, um, any comments for us, prayer requests, things like that. That really helps us as a staff um, to get to know you, to be able to pray for your needs and things like that. So, um, so please fill that out if you are new with us. And if you are new with us, we just want to say welcome. We hope that you have a great experience this morning worshiping the Lord. All right. Okay, so we have had an amazing summer with some pretty awesome speakers, and I'm really excited about our last special summer speaker who's going to be speaking today as well as next week, and um, we are going to have Ryan George join us. He and his wife, Corey, have been a part of our community for four years. Their twin boys have been a part of our community for three years, right? And um, we just love them. They have been involved in so many different ways. Uh, Ryan is currently on our board right now, as well as he leads our media team. And so we're just super grateful for what they bring to our community and how they blessed us in so many ways. So super grateful to have Ryan share with us this morning. So let's uh, welcome him this morning. Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks, Chris. Um, Sandy mentioned my twin boys, and I was just, uh, as I was thinking about this whole thing, uh, one of the fun favorite pastimes in our household has become running up and down the hall. So it started when they were kind of just learning to run. I think the wind across their face and just the excitement of moving quickly was, was too overwhelming. It was like screaming little pigs going up and down the hall. And that would turn into like mom and dad hiding behind the, the doorway and we'd kind of like jump out and scare them as they're running by and they'd just get all super crazy and excited and sometimes it would turn into tag, sometimes we'd turn into a train, we'd hold hands, we'd try not to like break the train as we go around different doorways as everyone has kind of a different idea of which door we're going to go into. Um, and the other day I, I walk into the house and I hear this, superhero, I'm like, Never heard that word from my little guys before, so I, I look at him, and, and Callum is running down the hall with his hand out, like Superman, calling superhero, and running down the hall. So I ask him, like, okay, Cal, like, what, um, wh which superhero are you? And he's just kind of confused, look on his face, like, yeah, are, are you Superman? Are you Batman? Like, what superhero are you? He's like, no, no, Dad, it's like this. So I stick my fist out, like, superhero, and he goes and runs up and down the hall. So I don't know if he actually knew what a superhero was, but that's what he was doing. But anyway, I, I was thinking about that today because I was thinking about at such a young age, heroes have such like a big impact on our lives. And we think about heroes and, and what makes them special, right? Like do they, you know, a lot of times they have some kind of like special abilities or something that allows them to kind of like defend the weak, stand up for justice when no one else is brave enough to do that. Um, and the book of Judges, which we're going to go into today, has many of those heroes that are called the heroes of faith in our Bible. Um, we're going to start on page 169 of your Bibles. This is in Judges chapter 6. And the person we're going to be looking at is the name of Gideon. So Judges takes place 
just after the death of Joshua, who was leading Israel just after Moses. In fact, the very first sentence is the death of Joshua. And Gideon's life takes place, and his story takes place about 200 years after Moses, so right about 1200 BC or so. Um, and what the life cycle of Judges kind of looks like is that the Israelites are following God, and then for whatever reason they choose to walk away from God, or at least they integrate pagan practices into their lifestyle so they've got God and pagan gods. And then God kind of steps away and says, okay, we'll let you kind of live that life and see where it takes you. And it invariably results in the oppression of some other people group or some other people group oppressing the children of Israel. Eventually, they cry out to God. And they've had enough, and they kind of cry out to God, and God raises up someone amongst them to help lead them into a victory and remove them from the oppression of their enemies. And that person then serves as a judge over Israel for a period of time, usually till the end of their life. Um, and then Israel is kind of left to their own devices again, and then they follow the same pattern. In this particular cycle of judges, we have the people of Israel under the thumb of the Midianites, who are kind of a nomadic group that live on the other side of the Jordan River. And what will happen is during the harvest time, they will rush into Israel and they will take all their food that they've been planting and they're kind of like harvesting. They will take all their livestock, their oxen, their sheep, their goats, anything that they can't take, they just destroy and it says that Israel was brought very low, that the Midianites ravaged the land of Israel. In fact, the Israelites would run to the rocks and to the cliffs, and they'd build up caves and strongholds within the, the clefts of the mountainside so they could try and avoid the reach of the Midianites. And God allowed the Midianites to have rule over them for seven years. As you can imagine, if someone takes all of your crops, it takes a little while to grow crops and then get them ready so they can harvest them. In the meantime, the Midianites come in and destroy all that, and you have to wait a whole other cycle before you can grow food again. And in the meantime, you don't have enough food to eat. So we pick up the story with Gideon in verse 11. Oh, and the Israelites, I almost forgot this part, the Israelites did cry out to God at some point during all of this, and God sent them a prophet. He doesn't have a name. We don't know who he was. But his basic response is, the Lord God said, hey, I have brought you out of Egypt, I have brought you into this land, and I have told you, do not worship the gods of the Amorites in the land that you are going into, but you did not listen to me. And that's pretty much where he leaves it. So Gideon, starting in verse 11, the story goes like this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abarezrite, which I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I've been trying to work on that all week. Um, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. He was doing it to hide from the Midianites. And when the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So first thing, um, many scholars believe the angel of the Lord is actually some form of Jesus Christ before he comes to the world as a, as a baby. And uh, it's never actually detailed, but a lot of people believe it's, it's pretty likely. Either way, the angel of the Lord is referenced, is some kind of form of God. Um, and we find that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. 
So normally, from what I can understand, is like if you were going to thresh wheat, you would find some kind of level ground, maybe slightly elevated, so as you're breaking apart the wheat grain from the stalk, that the wind could come in and kind of blow the chaff away. And because you don't get a lot of grain from each of the, the stalks of, of wheat, you'd probably be doing it in some kind of like massive amount of uh, wheat at one point in time. So they would often pull like a sled or a big log over the wheat um, by an animal of some kind, a horse or an ox, to kind of like, you know, build up the processing power of, of doing all this. But Gideon is hiding in a wine press. And so a wine press, as you can imagine, is actually just a big hollowed out area of a rock where they could pour in a whole bunch of grapes. Now this next slide we'll see um, just a kind of an example of that. And then once you've crushed the grapes, then the juice would flow to another basin that they also had hollowed out that would kind of collect the juice. Um, the next slide, we've actually got a couple examples of some ancient wine presses going back to right about 1200 BC. So probably something very similar, something that, that Gideon might have been using. So Gideon is afraid. He's doing something that's not very efficient. Um, I would imagine the Israelites probably have little plots of land where they may, might be a little bit out of sight, but they're, they're growing their wheat. And Gideon can just duck out of cover if he needs to, if he sees some, some scout from the Midianites, kind of checking to see what the Israelites are doing now. Uh, but he's scared, and he's hiding, <clears throat> and he's just trying to survive. And the angel of the Lord appears to him, and he goes, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Um, so Gideon, he responds to the Lord, and it doesn't actually sound like he has any inclination that the Lord is actually talking to him specifically. In fact, it looks like Gideon thinks that he's talking to the Lord is with you, Israel. And Gideon has some thoughts on that. He says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors have told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and he has given us to the hand of Midian. So in some ways, Gideon is actually blaming God for the position that Israel is in. And he's saying, where is God? Like, if God was here, we wouldn't have to be dealing with all this. But he's not here. So the angel of the Lord, at this point, turns to him. <clears throat> Why that's a specific you know, statement, I'm not really sure. Maybe he's looking out at something going on. Maybe he's playing uh, you know, guard for Gideon and he's, he's going to let him know when there's a scout walking by. But anyway, what Gideon says kind of calls the Lord's attention. He turns to Gideon and he says, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of the Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon's like, what? who is this guy? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my family. And uh, so the Lord says to him, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving no one alive. Other translations say you will strike them down as one man, kind of showing like this is not going to be like a guerrilla warfare thing. You're not going to be sitting there going to battle you know, for weeks on end. This is going to be a one-and-done deal, and you're going to strike down the whole army as if it was just one person. And the fact that God is saying, I'm going to be an active participant in this whole thing deserves a little mention. Because God uses imperfect people. 
He almost always uses someone who's not confident, who's not sure of himself, who stutters, who is uneducated, right? We tend to think of heroes in the Bible as being like somebody special, like maybe they're, they're holier, maybe they, they've got their lives more together, maybe they, they, uh, they read their Bible more often than I do. But God uses people who are flawed to do supernatural things. They're not anything special or extraordinary. God makes them special and extraordinary. So Gideon is starting to think, okay, this guy's kind of weird. I don't know who he is. I don't know if he's an angel. I don't know if he's a prophet. I don't know if he's just some guy who's, you know, detailing all this stuff out and speaking for God. But I need to see what what this guy is really up to. I need proof that he is and represents who he says he does because I'm just not going to go out and do something crazy by myself because some guy tells me to do it. So Gideon says to the, to the Lord, and he says, pardon me, my Lord, um, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me and please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord says, I will wait until you return. So Gideon runs back to his house and he starts and prepares a, a young goat from an ephah, and he also makes a, uh, some bread without yeast from an ephah of flour. And putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought it all out to the oak. And um, so that probably took like two or three hours. This angel of the Lord's kind of sitting there, hanging out, chilling under the tree. Gideon's making some of his food. Let's go catch a goat. Turn the oven on, prepare the goat, cut up the goat, cook the goat. Um, and then an ephah of flour. Does anyone know how much an ephah is? Yeah, I, I didn't either. So I went and looked it up. Um, and here's some conversions. So an ephah is about like 22 liters, roughly 20 quarts, five, actually kind of closer to six gallons, 430 eggs. That's like a lot of bread. So I have, it's probably like a 40-pound loaf of bread that Gideon's bringing out. So he brings out all this food for one guy. And the Lord tells him, okay, I want you to put all that food onto a rock. And so Gideon puts it all out on the rock. And he goes, okay, Gideon, you ready for your sign? And so he takes his staff and he touches the rock. And the Bible says that flames came up from the rock and took out all the food, and the angel of the Lord just disappears. Now, Gideon's like, I'm starting to realize what just happened here. And he exclaims, like, oh, no, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And if he remembers anything about Moses, he remembers that God tells Moses, no one can see the face of the Lord and live. And so Gideon thinks he's going to die. But he hears the voice of God talk to him, says, Gideon, Gideon, be at peace. It's okay, you're not going to die. Gideon's like, okay, God, okay. I'm just going to make an altar right here, and I'm going to name the Lord is Peace, right? So Gideon isn't looking like someone who is a mighty warrior at this point. He doesn't seem very bold. He doesn't seem very sure of himself. And we're going to sidebar for a second and just kind of build a, a concept. Um, names in the Bible have meaning a lot of times. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you name someone something and they're going to become that thing. 
But a lot of times, names are given to people to kind of symbolize or to bring memory, to memorialize an event or what has happened at that particular point in time. Like Hannah is praying to God day in and day out in the temple, asking for a child because she can't have one. And when God finally speaks to her and goes, okay, you're going to have a child, she has that child and she names him Samuel, which means the Lord has heard my, plot, my cry. Um, Esau, when he was born, his name means Harry. So you can imagine we've got a hairy little guy with a whole lot of hair. Um, his brother Jacob came out holding on to his heel. His name means grabber of the heel. And sometimes people would grow into their name, like Jacob. His life is one of kind of um, a level of deceit. He's kind of conniving. He kind of steals things that aren't actually something that he's earned. He kind of takes it from his brother. He tricks his brother into giving him his birthright. He tricks his dad into giving him his blessing, which should have gone to his brother. Um, so he's living a life that is um, kind of living up to his name, in a sense. And there are times when God steps in and will actually change someone's name to imprint the plan that he has on their life on them. So that when they hear their name now, they know this sounds impossible, but God has given me this name. So Abram, who is the father of, the high father of his tribe, God changes his name to Abraham, who's to be the father of many nations. He wrestles with Jacob at night. And at the end of the night, he touches Jacob's hip so that he's maimed to kind of end the whole wrestling match. And then he tells Jacob, your new name is Israel, which means that you have wrestled with God and won. I'm sure Jacob's thinking that that's not exactly how it went down. But God is telling him, I want you to recognize that you didn't steal this from somebody else. You contended with God. You did this. You earned this. And I'm giving you this name. Live in that identity. So when God speaks to Gideon and he says, you mighty warrior, it could be a prophetic statement. God telling Gideon, I know the beginning and I know the end of the story and I know what you're going to do and I'm telling you right now who you're going to be. But it could also very well be that God is speaking to Gideon about who Gideon already was, but it wouldn't be manifested until God stepped in. That God is honestly telling Gideon how he sees him. Because God sees us for how he designed us to be. That he designed us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows who we are, and we are in a broken world, and we don't often live up to our design. But the fact is, um, God sees us in the role that we are going to play within his kingdom. He sees you within the role that he has designed for you to have within his kingdom. And every single one of those roles is glorious. Gideon is a man who just sees himself as a, just a normal guy trying to get through the day. He's not anything special. He's timid. He's scared. And God sees a valiant warrior. God sees a man who's going to lead his people into battle. So Gideon, standing there, he's just had this crazy experience. doesn't even know how to process it. Um, he's kind of thinking, okay, go in the strength that you have, mighty warrior. Go in the strength that you have, mighty warrior. I got nothing. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do here. So he goes back home, and while he's at home, he receives a word from the Lord. Oh, thank goodness. And God says, okay, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. That same night, the Lord comes to him and goes, I want, to take, I want you to take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. 
And I want you to tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole that is beside it. And I want you to take that bull and I want you to offer it as a sacrifice on top of the altar that you've torn down using the wood from the Asherah pole to light the fire. I'm thinking, that's, that's kind of bold. So this is his father's idol, his father's God. And Gideon does what he's told. This is a um, significant in several ways because that bull has been around for seven years. Gideon has, and his family have been under the oppression of the Midianites for seven years. Every year of that bull's life, every year that they've kept that bull secret from the Midianites, every year that they've had to use it to kind of make more bulls or to thresh, you know, gather up their harvest every single year, this bull, every year of its life, would atone for a year of oppression that, Gideon, that the Israelites have been under. And then they wouldn't have a bull. So this has been a cornerstone to their survival. And now Gideon is offering it up, let alone the fact that food is at a premium and Gideon has just taken an army's portion of food and watched it just disappear in smoke. So Gideon is afraid of the people in his town for what they might think about what's going to happen here, and so he does it at night and he takes ten servants with him. And the next morning, as you can imagine, they were pretty upset, so they, they start asking around, who did this? And someone spills the beans and says, oh, it was Gideon. So, like, in the days of any kind of Western commercial, get the rope. <laughs> so they're going to gather around and they're going to like, they're going to get rid of Gideon and hopefully Baal won't be mad at them. And Gideon's dad stands up. These are his idols. He stands up and goes, wait, 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 wait. Why are we killing my son? Oh, because he ripped down Baal's altar? Baal's a god, right? And we're just people. So if Baal cares about that idol or that whole altar, like, shouldn't he deal with Gideon? Oh, yeah, yeah, you got a point. So they let Gideon go. Gideon's dad names him Jerobael, which means let Baal contend with him. So Gideon's, Gideon's faith, although imperfect, his obedience to God, although imperfect, not necessarily bold, he leads an example that actually encourages other people to also stand for God. And it says at that point, the Midianites gathered their armies into the valley of Jezreel and the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew the trumpets for war. And his tribe responded and several tribes around him responded and they sent people to gather behind Gideon. So Gideon's faith first impacts his personal life, it impacts his family, it impacts his village, and it impacts the villages near him. Just a simple act of obedience. And so as we kind of like think about this story, we're going to stop here and pick up with Gideon's story next week. Um, but I've kind of pulled out some points that we can kind of look at for this story. And the first one is that sometimes our problems are just natural consequences of things that we've done. Not always. Sometimes it's consequences of what someone else has done. And God doesn't always just remove the consequences. Sometimes he walks us through dealing with the fallout. My son Sebastian the other day had his blankie and he, and, he, and he wadded it up and took it outside and put it on a chair. And then him and his brother were playing in the water and you can imagine his blankie got all wet. And so Corey took the blankie away and had to put it in the dryer and he was just 
having a complete and utter meltdown, like, I want my blankie. Anyone who's got a two-year-old or a three-year-old can probably identify with that. They're like, buddy, this is what happens. Like, you made a bad choice, and your blankie got wet, and now we just got to dry it. You'll get it back. And it can be tempting to think that the condition of our lives is somehow a reflection on maybe how God feels about us. Like, he hasn't removed this problem. I don't have my blankie right now. God's taken it away. My parents have taken it away. Maybe they feel like I don't deserve a blankie. Maybe they feel like I'm not good enough for a blankie. Maybe I'll never get a blankie again. But God's view of us is not affected by our shortcomings. He doesn't see us for our mistakes. He sees us for who he designed us to be. We're the ones that get hung up on our shortcomings and our mistakes. We're the ones that allow that to keep us from actually following God to our full potential. God sees us for who we truly are. And who we truly are is intrinsically linked to Christ. Who we truly are and that potential will never show itself if God is not in the picture. And sometimes big changes, huge effects can happen from one person just taking a little step of faith and obeying God. And that one person's obedience and faith can affect multitudes of people. There's a, um, <clears throat> the very end of the book in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is talking to John in, in a vision and he's telling him about um, these different letters that he wants to send out to the different churches and it's a metaphor for different church bodies and groups. And he says, to those who overcome, I will give some of the secret manna, which is just food from heaven. And I will give them a white stone. Okay, white stone, right? Well, in the Greek times, white stones were given to like, it was like a VIP pass. It was like, this is your entry ticket to some kind of big event or uh, a feast or a banquet of some kind. But it's not just a generic ticket. Because on this white stone, God says, is a new name that is engraved on it that only you will know. So in the end, God has a name and an identity for every single one of us that is unique to us. He is molding us and bringing us up to the identity that he already knows that he has put inside of us. And in the end, we are going to receive that name. And that name is so unique, it will speak to everything that you are and everything that you've had to go through. And it will be a glorious name, and it brings glory to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, I pray that we can relate ourselves to the past, that we can take the lessons that you have taught Israel, and we can apply it to ourselves, that we can understand that, um, that you see us as your children, that you understand us better than we understand ourselves, and that our shortcomings are not anything to be worried about. Our mistakes are nothing to be uh, concerned about in the sense of, like, it doesn't separate us from you. It doesn't diminish our importance or our worth to you. Um, God, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would mold us, shepherd us, 
take care of us and pull us closer to you that we may live and grow into the name that you have given us. And may you be glorified in the growth. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so this is the time that we usually stand up and kind of pass the peace to each other, um, the peace of Christ, which in the peace of Christ is not just a, a, hey, may you have a good day, but the peace of Christ is described as the shalom of God. So it's more than just peace. It has to do with like the quality of your life, the uh, essence of the atmosphere that you find yourself in. So with that, let's pass the peace of Christ to each other. And may the peace of Christ be all, always with you.